Movement of Tools for Liberty, which is produced by Kingdom of the Logos, and this is the program where we hope to stir your nerves and off your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor, but I'm not alone here in Cord Purgatory. There are two others here with me, and they are... Amanda Sparrow. And Anthony Allegria. So today we're going to be reviewing The Cloverfield Paradox, which is a Netflix original. And then in Hot or Not with Church History, we're going to be discussing Antony of Egypt and the notion of falling asleep in the Lord. And finally, our last segment will be a devotional. So we're going to get right into Clover Paradox. All right, so Cloverfield Paradox, it is the third movie and actually a franchise of films. If you remember about a decade ago, there was the Cloverfield movie, which came out. There, and it put people in really two groups. There are people who thought it was utterly unwatchable, and it was because of the film style, and then there are people who sort of enjoyed it. Well, unmistakably, the new film, Cloverfield Paradox, it is much more viewable. It's a very enjoyable film. I had a lot of fun with it. And just for full disclosure, if you have not seen Cloverfield Paradox yet and you would like to, spoilers are coming. You have full disclaimer. If you want to, to slip out before you hear any of the spoilers, now's your chance. You've been warned, so we're going to move along. So I really enjoyed this movie. It did have sort of an awkward final scene, which you see the Cloverfield monster appear just so it can remind everyone that this is a Cloverfield movie, in fact, because it's totally different in style and in just about everything you could ever imagine from the first movie. In every possible way of being different, they are, they are different. But in this final film that has recently come out by Netflix, it does do something which is quite unique as far as films go. It starts from a totally different worldview. It, it is completely built off the modern secular orthodoxy. And this is interesting because of the movies I've seen, this is the first movie that I really think moves beyond the idea of trying to preach the sort of secular agenda to people to just presenting their movie, building off of that without trying to convince people of it because it's just the default. In other words, this new secular ethos is the default setting that people start with. And that's really very different from starting from a lot of the Christian ethos that other secular movies do. And they try to convince people to move away from that. This one starts completely there. So let's just share a few of our, our thoughts on this movie. How are we going to do this? I'm going to share my thoughts on the film as the film itself. Then I'm going to talk about the worldview. Amanda's going to share her thoughts on the, the film and her thoughts on the worldview. And then we're going to have a discussion about this. And you can decide as the viewer what your thoughts are as well. And I would like to say, in spite of the, the criticism I may have, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was fun to watch. It was a fun adventure. It was a really fun sci-fi movie. I thought it was done really well. Uh, there was a lot of things stylized that I think were really great choices in the film. Um, very different from the first Cloverfield movie. Anybody could watch this without feeling sick. There was a lot of good things they did artistically with the foreshadowing. They had the Russian dolls, the, the character Volkov, and we've actually got a picture that we can pull up of these Russian dolls. I knew as soon as I seen that, I thought this is a really good choice because you knew in seeing that that something was going to happen in this film where there were more layers within the Volkov character and I was asking myself when I watched this, is he going to have creatures inside of him or is he going to have another consciousness inside of him? And the movie did not fail because not only did it do both of those things, but it also added the whole deal of the machinery being inside of him. That I was not expecting. So it took that to its furthest possible conclusion. There was another scene in the beginning which I thought was really good that shed a lot about the worldview of this. Is It has an opening scene. There are cars lined up. There are... Two cars, which you can kind of make out before, but the first car you can clearly identify as what it is is a, a Toyota Prius. And I thought that was an interesting choice just because of what it does about the film's ethos. Again, the Prius is often associated with conservation and things of that. But at the same time, this is making the argument that even your actions to, to do things to conserve the earth, they're not enough. 
Having a Prius is not enough. The, <laughs> the doomsday is coming. The final battle that we've seen in the film, I actually liked a lot because it, it looked a lot like a Bond movie. Uh, if a Bond movie were in space with women in the, the title roles and character, um, not to do anything against some of the Bond movies back with the, the past where they, they were in space, Moonraker or anything like that. But as we looked at this, it looked a lot like the Die Another Day final scene with Gustav Graves and Bond duking it out. We've actually got another picture you can pull up on that. The, it's a cosmetic similarity for sure. But it just it fascinated me how much it looked like this. Even the way that uh, Jensen and Hamilton are fighting in the end looks so much like Bond and Gustav. Uh, even from her reaching over, that being Hamilton reaching over to Jensen and pulling something off of her leg, the same thing happens when Bond reaches over and ejects Gustav Graves' parachute. And even if you look, at, we've got two pictures we can pull up of Gustav Graves and, and Jensen. They look a lot alike. Even their hair is parted in the same way. Their, their outfits that they have on, and they both get sucked out um, into the, the nether sphere where they are destroyed. So it's a very, very similar scene there. And I really, really enjoyed the scene. It was a fun action film. I know a lot of people have been criticizing it. And I think most of the criticism, whether people are, are conscious of this or not, really come from the ethos of the movie. And again, it is something where it was so unique because this is the first film that I've ever sat through that really moved and embraced the new secular ethos of our world as the default setting. It's not trying to push any agenda onto you because it's just assumed that's how everyone thinks. It assumed the secular ethos. It did not try to present or argue in favor of the secular ethos, which I thought was very interesting. And I'm going to wrap up my thoughts on the movie there, and I want to, to move into a little bit of a criticism of this secular ethos so you know exactly what it is I'm talking about. One of the themes that we found throughout the movie, whether it be Hamilton making the decision that she has to be the one to go and warn her alternative self in this alternative dimension, there's this idea that only certain people or certain identities can handle certain problems. In other words, on this spaceship, only she could be the person to go and carry out whatever task it was that she does on the ship, although it's not totally clear. She's the civilian coordinator or something to that effect in the alternative universe, but in our home universe that the movie take play, takes place in and starts in and finishes in, she gets sent to the ship, but only, only she can do that. And even as you see the different tasks being delegated as the, the crisis on the ship unfolds, whether it be the ring that has to be detached, only certain people can go and do that. In other words, people can't train other people to do that. There's this sort of idea that nobody who's not the correct identity can handle certain tasks or they can't have insight into certain things. There's no room for a jack-of-all-trades or people to train other people for other things, and that's interesting. Another thing that we found in sort of the ethos of the movie, the secular ethos, is that there is no alternative to emotional conviction. Whether it be Keel, the, whether, I don't know if you would say he's the, the commander or the captain of this operation, but him saying, I have to do it, I have to sacrifice myself for this instead of the rational alternative doing it remotely. Whenever people have an emotional conviction, there is no alternative. The rational alternative is unnecessary. You get the emotional conviction, so you go with that. Another thing that was also a given in that is the, the necessity of aesthetic diversity, but the absence of diversity in systems of thought. Even when people spoke different languages, whether it be Tam speaking Mandarin, everybody just assumed that we were all on the same playing field. Just because she's speaking a different language, it's sort of like in Star Wars where R2-D2 talks. You can understand him perfectly if you're there. Uh, of course, I always watch movies with the subtitles, so it had that on there. But... Everybody speaks to her and they, they understand one another even though she's speaking a, a different language. 
But again, it comes back to this idea that everybody is on the same level as far as our mentality goes. There's not really a, a wide diversity of, of thought and systems of thought. And even when people were in different dimensions, I thought this was another reinforcement of that. When Jensen is confronting Hamilton, and there's this question of, are you the same in the two worlds? And Hamilton was like, maybe the one in your world is, is different from me. And Jensen says, no, you're the same. We see that idea that there's really a uniform mentality that transcends not only one world, but it transcends all reality. And, and there's no deviation from this, this transcendent mentality. And that's something I thought was interesting, that the movie just bases everything as everyone's the same. You're, you're the same character, even though your history and the two worlds are different. And that's one of the, the things that i really seen in there. I think the, the worst scene in the film, which really built off of this emotions over any alternative, was the last scene when Hamilton's husband is yelling at the phone. He keeps yelling for them not to come down. Um, it's already been told to him that they've ejected to come to Earth, but he keeps screaming this, which I don't think is how people would actually respond to that, and it made no sense. And I thought that was the worst scene in the film that didn't add anything to it. And the, the big deal with this secular ethos, which I'll come back and we'll talk to more in the end, is how this movie builds everything off of a simple fact that things in reality are the result of a narrative. They're not the results of cause and effect. In other words, they see all causes are not actual actions and things in the world. They are whatever narrative is presented in the world. In the end of the movie, the shepherd, the part of the space station which is supposed to be an energy source, it works. Even though there really hasn't been any mechanical improvement, not to mention the catastrophic damage done to the entire space station, the fact that they've had to jettison large components of it, and that there's been no time for any sort of scientific research, reason, or anything stemming from critical thinking, it basically works in the end because the narrative of the movie demands it. And the narrative of reality demands that the space station works, so it does. Theologically speaking, this is sort of the idea of cheap grace. It's the idea of salvation without transformation. It's being holy without receiving the transformation into holiness. It's sort of sanctification without sanctification. It's kind of hollow. The end result is achieved and the desired effect is achieved without there really being a cause. And in spite of all of this, I really did enjoy the movie. And I'm going to let Amanda share her thoughts. And then we will come back and we will discuss some of these notes. All right. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed the film as well. I thought it was good. There were some things I thought were quite interesting. And one of it being it, it's kind of displayed as this um, sci-fi movie. Uh, but it really starts out almost like a horror film. Um, you have characters kind of dying in very creative and intriguing ways. And um, as the movie progresses, however, it kind of realizes it wants to be a sci-fi film again and makes this hard turn. Um, and so it kind of balances or tries to balance being a sci-fi and a horror at the same time. And it, it's not quite sure which one it wants to be. And so it makes for sometimes a, an odd movie. And I think what makes the reason I bring that up is sci-fi has become this great medium, um, for exploring our world that we live in. It becomes this kind of social commentary and they ask these deep philosophical questions. If you look at, um, some classic sci-fi films like Star Trek, the original series, and then some of the early movies, it, it starts asking these questions about like, uh, identity and uh, 
what what constitutes a life and things like that. And and the film kind of hints at this, um, the Cloverfield paradox. It tries to ask and try to be kind of this hard sci-fi that asks these great philosophical questions, but then it asks them and then it, it like it's like, oh no, we only have ten minutes left in the movie. We gotta wrap things up. And so it kind of just leaves you hanging. And so you're kind of felt with left with this odd balance again of of what it needs to be and what the film was trying to do. And it was enjoyable to watch these characters interact. But it seemed like the, it was most enjoyable probably for, like, the first half. And then when it kind of switched, it was like, okay, now we have to be a hard sci-fi, but we haven't laid the foundation for for any of these things or to answer any of the questions. It just leaves you hanging. Um, and I thought there were, there were two quotes that I really thought were very interesting that um, could have, again, led to a great movie if it had continued down that route. Um, was at one scene the uh, Hamilton's husband has found a little girl in the rubbish and he's take put her in her his car and trying to take her somewhere safely and she's kind of trying to this little kid is trying to figure out what's going on and he tells her that bad things are happening but good people are going to try to fix it and her response is well we're going to need a lot of good people and so there seems to be almost this movement where the film is hinting at this response that is needed of a lot of people and then if you've seen the conclusion of the film it kind of just leaves to this one person and like dylan was hinting at this um almost deus ex machina the story just needs to conclude so things are going to be set right so we can end the movie and then finally in the in the battle between jensen and uh, hamilton uh, jensen talks about how um she she plays along like she's just going to go back to her earth with the information to build their um their machine that's going to create energy their shepherd and so she plays along but then she she knocks hamilton out she gets out and she starts killing members of the team and they're trying to figure out why is she doing this because they're giving her the information she said well it's going to take too much time if i just steal your machine that's working and you've figured out how to get it working and things like that then i can save my planet and basically she kind of concludes with a statement of you know I'm going to kill a couple of people so I can save billions. And again, it hints at this this amazing idea that we get a lot of in sci-fi about what is the value of a life and, and when when is the few outnumber the many or when does the many out few outweigh the few. And again, it hints at it and then it just kind of like, eh, we're just going to kill her off because she's the antagonist. We don't really care. We care more about Hamilton. So, of course, we're going to side with Hamilton, but with no real reason for doing any of it. Um, and usually in watching films, um, most of the time I don't wish films are any longer than they are, but this one, I think if it had lasted longer or kind of picked the lane it wanted to be in, then it could have been a great, either a great horror, uh, kind of a space horror, or it could have been a really great sci-fi film. But because it was too busy trying to juggle these things and not really stick with one, it just felt like, uh, almost two movies or maybe even three movies because then you have this really funny Irish character that's in it and I, I can't remember his name but he brings a lot of comedy but also kind of depth to the film and then he dies and that's it <laughs> it's like okay well there's that's that's kind of done with that portion of the film but anyways those were my thoughts on on the film so for Amanda you might say that the the Cloverfield paradox is can you be a a whore or sci-fi and the paradox <laughs> of choosing that um <laughs> But let's go back and discuss some of this stuff. And I'll, I just have a few things that I would like to talk about. Now I'll present them in. And this is really more a commentary on the orthodox. And then we'll talk about some of the things which you brought up. Some excellent points. I think both of the questions you brought there are fantastic. So one of the things that I thought was interesting is, and again, this is built not off of the Christian ethos, but the, the modern secular ethos. And one of them is that there's no alternatives to the orthodoxy. And when I say orthodox, I mean, what is the acceptable 
cultural norms of the day, what is socially acceptable. And again, you've seen things like only certain identities can do certain things. In other words, if you're not this role on the ship, then you can't do that. Nobody can teach you how to do that. Again, this is really a secular form of Gnosticism where there are people who are elect, they have the, the knowledge to do that, and then there are those who are the followers who just permit such. Um, this was one of the things that I, I really picked up on in the film. Again, it was a subtle theme. They weren't trying to force this down your throat, but it was built off this understanding that you have certain things in life, you have certain identities in life, and that never changes, and you, you're always limited to that, and everybody else has a different form of Gnosticism. Nobody's a jack-of-all-trades. And one of the scenes I seen where this was communicating this message was in the beginning and the end of the movie. In the beginning, you see this Prius sitting there. And really, um, a lot of people will, will kind of say driving a Prius is more of a political statement than a choice in car. But it, it is connected to this idea of saying we're going to do something to, to conserve the planet, whether or not that's accurate or not. This is sort of the general sentiment of it. And, and even people choosing to drive a Prius and owning a Prius, it's not enough. Your personal actions are not enough to, to save the planet. The only thing that saves the planet is you keeping up with the narrative as it changes. Again, the sort of secular narrative of our society, it's always changing. It, it, it progresses faster than people can keep up to it. And it's no matter what you choose, no matter what personal actions you take, it's never going to be enough to save you. And contrasting that with the final scene of the shepherd working, where again, it's almost nonsensical for the shepherd to work successfully at the end after so much damage has been done. Again, not a lot of research. I mean, they've been in sort of a crisis mode on the ship. And the first time it, it fired up, again, they've never been able to get it to work. It fires up once. It's disastrous. It takes them to a parallel universe on the other side of our solar system. It messes things up dramatically. And then after the ship is damaged, they get back. Um, but the whole idea is the narrative is how you get to the end, having a correct narrative as opposed to actually having a cause and effect. Instead of saying we have to do scientific research and things to figure out how to get this spaceship to work. No, we just we just fix the narrative. Uh, Hamilton comes to term, you, you can't steal energy. That That's not how you do it. You cannot be dependent on energy. It's a very convenient thing for our, our secular ethos to, to beat up on energy because everybody needs that. So you can get everybody guilty on that. But again, <laughs> choosing to drive a Prius, that's not enough. Nothing of it's going to be enough unless you just go with the narrative. Wherever it goes, the narrative will guide you to the end. Um, what do you think about that? What is? What are our thoughts? Let's just go around our, our studio here. Go around Cord Purgatory. <laughs> thoughts on the narrative takes you to the takes you home. Well, I think um, some of it is as simple as we can look at this and say, well, this is a movie, and maybe it's it's kind of narratively a bad movie because <laughs> it does have these elements where the it just concludes because it has to conclude, right? Yeah. You can't watch a movie for four or five hours. It has to be within this realm of an, an intention span. And it, But I think that there's something really interesting you're, you're saying is that um, this medium, this this film that kind of has, and it, it's probably seen in a lot of movies too. You, you can watch a bad movie and be like, okay, this just, it's, it didn't, the beginning of the film didn't match the end because there wasn't a logical progression. It just had to end. But it's becoming more and more of a norm where it's not necessarily a bad movie, but it's almost teaching a bad philosophy. And so the medium almost becomes the primary expression yeah. um, throughout it. And so I think that's something quite interesting as we look at it and as we're looking at our world is there does seem to be this disconnect between consequences and actions. And so 
and we almost create or try to twist the consequences, the actions and their consequences to fit a narrative that we want it to fit. Um, so I think that's something that we have to, sometimes we can disconnect it because we're like, that's just a story. And we don't realize that stories do inform us. And so we have to be more careful in how we, and that doesn't mean we don't watch this movie. I mean, it's a good movie and we, we can definitely say it is fiction, but at the same time, it does reveal something much deeper that we, we have to watch out in our real world. So, Anthony, do you have any thoughts on this? The idea of narr- the narrative will take you home. No, no transformation needed. You know, no, uh, no growth in holiness. Just, just buy into the narrative. No, no personal agency at all. Believe the narrative. Don't challenge it, and you will, you will find your, your paradise. Well, nothing too novel for me, but I definitely hope that people can look at individual situations and assess them as they are, instead of trying to take some, some other narrative or go along with any other agenda to try and, you know, use lessons from that to solve the problem. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to these two questions that Amanda brought up, which are really more or less quotes from the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of good people and the five people to save billions. Um, talk to us a little bit more about that, Amanda. Well, I think, um, again, there's something interesting that that it brings up. The first quote I loved, and I think that's something we can find a great inspiration in almost um, that, it's like, okay, there's a lot of bad in this world, but some good people are going to fix it. Well, we're going to need a lot of good people. And I think the character who's responding, the little girl, was she was saying it out of desperation, but it revealed something that if our world is going to change, people, individuals are going to need to change, are going to have to take action. Um, and then as much as that was saying there needs to be uh, people, everyone, needs to do this, then we have this almost flip of it where Jensen, kind of who becomes later on the antagonist in the film almost, where she's like, well, it's worth killing five people. Um, the, the many, uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of few, to quote a Star Trek quote. Um, and so there's this almost, again, this movie's creating this almost false dichotomy or this, this these two things that are in tension with one another of... Do do we need lots of people being good, or can one person pretty much dictate what can be good and bad for a society? Well, my thoughts are, when I hear that, is it makes a statement, we're going to need a lot of good people. And it doesn't really go into that in depth. No. Which, again, most of the narratives in pop culture don't go into depth. But my question that I might have for, for those of us here in court purgatory is, can the secular ethos answer the question of what is a good person? And my, my answer to that question would be no. I think one of the reasons why it didn't go in depth to that is I don't know that the ethos that this built is built off of can. If everything is is sort of relative, you get again that that the Cloverfield paradox of what are good people if everything can theoretically be good. If there's an infinite malleable morality, what is a good person? Hmm. What do y'all think? Do y'all think that the ethos of our culture, of our secular culture, can answer the question of what a good person is? Any thoughts? Well, I think that um that it does have its its like group of things that it considers a good person must comply with you know like you have to be really concerned about people's rights which is kind of the straw man argument you know cuz like there's not really much oppression on rights but um i mean actually taking place but you know you better freak out about it whenever it comes up in conversation and act like you care yeah you know and so like is logically it can't produce anything like that's objectively good 
to itself. Yeah. Because, you know, things are relative. But there is still this disconnect of things that are regarded as good. You yeah. know, so even though they are disconnected from itself, it still regards this group of things are good and society really needs to comply with it. Yeah. What do you think, Amanda? Do you think the secular side of society can answer the question on what a lot of good people even look like? Um, I think it, it can appear to. Um, and, and I was thinking back when you were talking about the, the captain who sacrifices himself. And so we say a good person is someone who sacrifices themselves for the greater mm -hmm. purpose. And we're like, okay, that sounds good. That seems like a good definition for a good person. Yeah. But then... Like, when we look into the story, it does seem ridiculous. The captain's like, no, I have to kill myself. And you're like, okay, the first few people's deaths that happened were really creative. And it, yeah. it was, like, intriguing. And then they were like, oh, we got to kill the captain off. How are we going to kill the captain? Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll just have him sacrifice. And, and so it's meaningless. It really yeah. is. And, and yeah. I think that's what then the film almost reveals um, its pathology in it. Because it's like, what is a good person? A good person is someone who sacrifices himself even when they don't have to. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can look at some movie. You know, you've got... Um, like the Wonder Woman film we've talked about a couple of weeks ago where you have Steve Trevor sacrificing himself. And, and there's a reason to it. There's a rationale. Yeah. And so, th yeah, I don't think... If we're going to look at this as a secular world trying to provide good, we can definitely see good in the secular world. We can see where the secular world has rightfully judged certain things as good. But the foundation to why those things are good isn't there. And so ultimately, they're going to fall apart. I think that actually wrap. we should probably wrap up our review on that statement because I think the shortcoming of the film, and whether people realize this or not, I think the, the shortcoming of the film is it's built off of an ethos that doesn't have a foundation to answer the questions of what a good person is and what actually is the value of life. And I think on that note, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for watching and hang around. We'll be doing church history, hot or not, and then a devotional as well this week. So thank you for watching. Alright, we're going to have fun with church history through the game of Hot, Not, or Sanctified. And basically how this works is we will examine two items from church history. They may be saints, doctrines, or any substantial item from church history. We will present an overview of each item and then go around cord purgatory asking if these are hot theological inspirations or not. And you can decide for yourself where you are at. Or, in rare cases, when we are not able to decide if an item is hot or not, it may be considered sanctified. This is only to be used in the rarest of cases when the item is too far beyond our abilities to consider. For today, we will be looking at St. Antony of Egypt and the idea of falling asleep in the Lord. So let's begin with Antony of Egypt. Now, supposedly he lived from 251 to 356 AD. However, we can only speculate this. However, our speculation is not because of the the rare reality of people living past 100 at the time, or even the credibility of the counts from Athanasius, but instead, our speculation is based off of some recent images which have cropped up of St. Anthony still living in flesh and blood and creating a little bit of mischief in our local community. We found this one, a picture of Dylan while he was preaching. Now, if you notice, there is, without a doubt, a... Likeness to say Anthony underneath the table.
And here's another of him sneaking into the church. The youth room. And look at that hump. And I mean, sneaking around a pew. He must be slipping in there to try to get someone's spine <laughs> to, to help with that. I guess when you're 1,700 years old, it does wonders for your back. And let's get right into this. We'll come back to, to Antony of Egypt's shenanigans later. Stick around for that. We'll come back to him. Now that we realize he's amongst us, we've just decided to, to let him have his own cameras and, and do his own segment. So we'll come back to him. But let's see what he was doing back in the 3rd and 4th century. Anthony, would you give us an overview of Antony of Egypt, whom there is no relation or connection with? Antony of Egypt is often attributed as the first monk, although he is certainly not the first person to live the ascetic life. He was born around 251 AD and was born into a relatively wealthy family. As a young man, he was left the family fortune and the task of taking care of his sister. However, one day, while in church, he was listening to a sermon on the young rich ruler, and he placed himself in the story, taking it as a literal call to give away everything he owned. Thus, he sold most of his property and gave the proceeds to the poor. Yet, he kept a certain amount for his sister. Later, he was again convicted while in a church service to give even that up. Therefore, he gave away the rest of his family's property and turned his sister over to the care of some ascetic women. He then went to study and lived with some ascetic men who were on the edge of town. These men were not truly monastic, as they were still part of the town. Antony took matters all the way in that direction, moving out into the wilderness to live a separated life. Oftentimes, his life is depicted as having epic battles with demons and the devil himself. He would fight these battles with the weapons of prayer and discipline. At around the age 54, he founded something of a monastery, where others could join him in the separated life. He was not entirely removed from the Christian community, though, as many sought him for spiritual aid. He also battled the great Arian heresy. At the age of 100, he died at the age of 105 in 356. However, we do want to contest that he is actually dead. Yes, the, the likeness of the, the back problems is uncanny. But the question for us now is, is St. Antony of Egypt hot, not, or sanctified? Amanda, what do you think? Um, well, there's some interesting things in his story. Um, uh, one I, I picked up on I really like is that he was part of the fight against Arian heresy, which was um, a heresy of the nature of Christ and, and how do we conceptualize Christ's position within the Trinity. Um, so that's quite exciting to hear that he was a part of that, which also we can place uh, St. Nicholas in, in that era as well. Um, and then also him, his willingness to try to create a more formalized version of monastic life in monasteries, um, which can go hot or not, depending on how you kind of hear out how monasticism has moved. It's done some great things in the past and also even in the present, um, but has also been some, some trouble. But I think overall, I can give Antony of Egypt um, as, a, as a story and say hot. What do you think, Anthony Alegria? Well, I would think that Anthony of Egypt was pretty hot in all. Um, you know, it would be good to know some more details on the situation with his sister, you know, because, like, I feel like, you know, it could become a, ro a roaming virtue to suggest that, you know, you have to give all your wealth to the poor. And then, you know, if your sister's in any way handicapped, well, hopefully some ascetic women will be able to take care of her, you know. So um, in a way, that could be bad. But there is no details about, about you know, the well-being of the sister, so she, sh she could be perfectly fine. That's just something that 
I think people should pay attention to. But all in all, I would definitely say Hot. You know, he took he took his discipline to new heights and levels, and made it possible for other people as well. So nice and. Nice touch there with the the Roman virtues being brought up because I really think that's one of the problems we have. People pick and choose the things they like, and we like to take a holistic look of things. Um, and after saying that, I'm about to pick this <laughs> apart and fragment it apart. Uh, I really do like some of the products of his ministry, though. On the whole, I'm going to have to say, and not for Antony of Egypt, and I'm not going to go into all the details why, but I'll allay a lot of that responsibility to the mischief that he's doing nowadays. So <laughs> we're going to go ahead and let you see what he's been up to now, and then we'll come back and talk about falling asleep in the Lord. Let's see, where will I hide? I don't want anybody to see. It's 2% subordinate to whole milk, or subordinate to, I don't know, what will help my back? That won't. We will hide where nobody will see us. Nobody will see our hideous hunch. We will go up here and hide right in plain sight. Theodore, I told you you can't come to church today. You only come to church on certain days, Theodore. You stink too bad for every other day. Yeah, I guess I can let you in, Theodore, if you promise to be good. You can't do me like you did last time, Theodore. Theodore. See, are there any pictures? A thousand years too old to read. Let's see, no pictures. Oh, that's nice. Theodore looks a little tasty. Theodore, are you ready for Sunday school? It's time to go inside, Theodore. Oh, yes. Inside we go, Theodore. Alrighty, and as we continue our discussion on hot, not, or sanctified, let's talk about the theology of falling asleep in the Lord. This is an interesting thing we see referenced in the New Testament. And Amanda, why don't you go ahead and share for us out of 1 Corinthians 15. Alright, so um, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are to... Out of all people, we are to be most pitied. All right, so this is really the question of how does the church deal with people passing? Historically, there's been this language that people have been using that is falling asleep in the Lord. In other words, when somebody is no longer in their, their earthly body with sort of a conscious state that, that we would call alive, when no one is, is alive, um, they have fallen asleep in the Lord. This is really interesting because it has a bit of end-time thinking. How do we view the end of time? How do we view the end time in the church together, it comes into all of this when we describe someone not as have having died, but instead of having fallen asleep in the Lord. So what do we think about this? I know it's it's something we don't hear often used. Sometimes we, we see if we study church history, we look at some of the New Testament, we see this idea. What do you think, guys? Um, well, this language, um, when, when we were talking about earlier, I immediately thought of the first uh, Thessalonian text, um, not actually the ones that we read in, in from Corinthians, but where it talks, Paul says that they don't, he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. And many translations just translate it as those who have died in the Lord. But if you look at the original Greek language, it, it's literally have fallen asleep. And so this goes back to kind of 
how the early church viewed those who died and how we continue that language even now. It's a very messy conversation, to be honest, because then we do get into things like eschatology and, and heaven and um, modern ideas like the um, tribulation and the, um, the word is, is escaping me, but we're, what's that called? There's, there's a move, the Left Behind series and things like that where, where people think of these concepts. And so it does kind of get messy and what happens to those who die before the kingdom comes in its fullness. So it seems so big that it'd be very easy for us to just say, fall asleep in the Lord. Let's just call it sanctified. It's too big for us to, to handle and move on. But I really think understanding this concept and digging into it deeper can actually reveal some great things for us because ultimately these texts where Paul's talking in Corinthians and also in Thessalonians, it's about hope. Where is our hope to, to lie? And if we have no hope, then we are to be pitied um, most because we have believed in this false concept of resurrection. And so really the focus of these texts is the hope that we have in Christ that everything will be set right and that life can happen, that we can have eternal life. So I think ultimately when we speak about this as hot, not, or sanctified, uh, we have to have the discipline, I think, to call it, to say hot. Agreed. Anthony, your thoughts? Well, uh, recently I've been studying a couple perspectives on the resurrection, and one of them is that, you know, after we die, we do basically just, like, go to sleep for a while. Or, you know, kind of like sh the old um, thoughts on shale and, you know, you just don't feel anything or something along those lines for that time being until the resurrection later on. And this would kind of go into line with this. And I know that you had some uh, some thoughts on time related to the body and during yeah. that, t that time. Yeah. Um, and on that note, this is really where I think the conversation should go. We, we know that time is contingent on mass. Time is something which is not fixed across uh, the universe. It is heavily contingent on mass and how space and, and mass are compressed and whatnot. And I think the best answer I would have for that is to say when people die, even though it may be different to our relative uh, timelines, that it can all happen at once, the resurrection. I think there's a good argument to be said of that. I, I can't get that out of my mind, the, the contingency of time upon mass. And so I, I would say hot to this because I think not to anything to do with the timeline in between because I think that it's a bit of a, a moog point to, to harp on that for too long. But the reason why I say this point is hot is because of the hope that it gives. It reorients the mentality we have about uh, people passing when they're falling asleep in the Lord, that it's not a, a permanent thing, that there is something in, in the future. And the reason why I wanted us to read this text out of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 17 through 19, is this idea that it, it's not just about hope in this moment only, not just hope in this life. It points to something in the future. So Amanda says hot, I said hot. Anthony, um, just to clarify, are you going to say hot, not or sanctified on this one? I would probably say sanctified on this one just because I'd want to read a whole lot more. But, you know, obviously there is always the hope of Christ and I would consider that hot every time. All right, good point. And we'll wrap this up for now. We'll be back with the devotional and thank you for viewing.
Alrighty, and we're going to wrap up everything today with a devotional out of Mark chapter 1. And this is going to be on the theme of, of personal cleansing and not just being deceived by the cosmetic aspects of, of things in the world, but to actually look beyond that. So let's just go ahead and get right into our, our text today. Amanda, would you read for us out of Mark chapter 1? All right, so starting with the 40th verse. And a leper came to him, that is Jesus, imploring him and kneeling beside him and said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. All right, so the question we have is what is really happening in this story? Many might look at this and say this is Jesus touching the untouchables, but there's a lot more than just Jesus being moved by compassion. It's not just enough that we be moved by compassion and be hung up in the, the mediums of the story, the the touching of the lepers, merely a medium of this. It's the canvas. It's the the canvas which the, the story is painted upon. In reality, what Jesus is doing is he is cleansing. And if we notice carefully, it's not just a bodily cleansing, although that is important, but it's also a cleansing of the soul. It's a spiritual cleansing. It's something which, which takes the leper to a better place. He's able to, to be a part of society now. And if we are to be Christ-like disciples, we must not just mistake the cosmetics of Jesus' ministry for what we do in our world, but we must really look to what is going on. We must look beyond the cosmetics of touching the leper to realize that there is a real call for transformation and cleansing. Right now, it's in the time of Lent. This is a time where we, we pay penance. We see what we can do to become closer to the Lord and deepen our faith. We as individuals, we must not shy away from the personal cleansings that we may need to do in life. When there are things that we need to, to work on in our lives, we must own up to that. The truth will set us free. We must be people who don't shy away from the need of personal growth or personal transformation, but we must look for it. We must embrace it. Jesus in his ministry is always looking to give people personal transformation and growth towards something which is better. Earlier today, we talked about the whole theology of the Cloverfield Paradox, and quite honestly, there's not much of a theology there. It's sort of a secular ethos. It tries to get to an end without really having a lot of causal factors involved in it. If we want to move towards holiness, we must embrace the personal cleansing, which can take us from where we're at and move us towards a better place. And on that note, let's wrap up our program. We thank you so much for spending time with us. Tools for Liberty is produced by Kingdom of the Lagos, and our crew here at Kingdom of the Lagos which is filmed in Cord Purgatory, is myself, J. Dylan Proctor, Amanda Sparrow, and Anthony Alegria. You can find us for free on our downloadable podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CastBox. And of course, we're also on Facebook if you just do a search for Kingdom of the Lagos, and you can find us on YouTube as well. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you would like to help us out, please just share our content. Grab a link to any of our content and share it with your, your friends and family. That will do us so much. And if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. That will help us out tremendously. And on that note, have a blessed day.